What kind of a relationship do you have with someone if you never talk to them? Or if they talk to you and you ignore them? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prin, and welcome to Bible 805. In our podcast today, we'll review God's conversations with His people throughout the Old Testament and what He finally had to say to them before becoming silent for 400 years. Along the way, we're going to talk about how we ought to respond when we read His messages to us today. Before we start in on our review, I found this, what I consider just really a good overview of the book. This came out of the New International Encyclopedia of Bible Characters. And here's what it had to say. Though the exiles had been chastened and thoroughly purged of any inclination to idolatry, their leaders and they themselves came back to the homeland largely unreformed in other respects. The burden of the book of Malachi was the glaring incongruity between the identity of the Jewish community as a people of God and the living out of all that is required of them. Theirs was not the problem of rebuilding the temple in the holy city, for that had long been done by Malachi's day. Rather, it was the issue of holy living and holy service in the aftermath of all the external accomplishments. Malachi, though dead, yet speaks to the modern world about the need to bring performance in line with profession. That is something we all struggle to do, and hopefully today we'll learn some lessons that will help us be more consistent as we try to live out what we say we believe as Christians. Now let's start in with our lesson, and I'm entitling Malachi, A Final Conversation Between God and His People. Now before we get into that final conversation, I want us to look back at the history of how God talked to people in the past. And by the way, I want to congratulate all of you who have been with us as we've gone along looking at the entire Old Testament. This is the last book in the Old Testament. And I'm really excited to wrap this up just because I hope many of you have gotten a new appreciation for it, a new understanding of it. Now, I also hope and literally pray that this isn't the last time you read through the entire Old Testament. As I've shared many times with my classes, my habit, if you would call it that, year after year is to read through the Bible every year in chronological order. That has changed my life. And I would pray that all of you, when you finish Revelation, which will finish in just a few months, when you have read through the entire Bible, that you'll start in all over again. Maybe you read it in a new translation. Maybe you read a new Bible commentary along with it. Maybe you read the same one that you've read this last year. But whatever you do, please don't look at this as a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but as something that's a continuous continuing part of your life, because I promise you that every year you will learn more, you will learn to love the Lord more, and you will learn to listen to Him more closely. But now, let's go back to the very dawn of creation, and in a perfect world, we see the wonderful picture of God and Adam and Eve walking together in the cool of the day, and I've often thought how incredible those conversations must have been. They were created in this perfect, beautiful, and wonderful world, and they walked and talked with their Creator. But we know that sin intervened. And we also know that Adam and Eve had absolutely no idea of the consequences their actions would have in disobeying God. No idea that the daily conversations would cease 
and they'd be cast out of the garden. They had no idea that now, instead of God walking with them daily, that sin would be their constant companion. And in addition to that, there would be this chattering, this awful conversation in their heads all the time. And sometimes I've thought that one of the most wonderful things about heaven when we get there and after we're we're back in full-time forever fellowship with the Lord is we won't listen to that chattering in our heads. I don't know about you, but I get so tired of, oh, I should do this, or maybe I shouldn't do that, or well, what about this, or what about that, or just this chatter, 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 chatter of fears and worries and all these kinds of things. God didn't intend us to have to listen to that noise. But we, as humanity, brought it on ourselves. But that won't go on forever. Now, God didn't give up on his creation, even though they rebelled against him. Through the thousands of years, he continued to talk to people who would sometimes listen, who sometimes responded, and others who ignored him. Now, we know a lot about some of their stories. God focuses in on Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, on Joseph, and how God called and formed what we know as the chosen people. Now, we don't know as much about Job. Now, we know of all his trials and troubles and tribulations, but we really don't know his background. We really don't know much about his descendants. But his story reminds us, and this is important, that there are many other conversations that have always gone on between God and people who were not of what we call the chosen race, the Jewish race, that God would work through to give his word and eventually the Messiah to the world. God had to focus on one group. He couldn't tell us everybody's stories. But I want us to always realize that God is at work in so many ways that we can't see and that we don't understand. And the book of Job is just one of the stories that reminds us of that. But the conversation that we do know about is in our Bible. It tells us about the Jewish people. They're beginning with the call of Abraham, their temporary trip to Egypt that lasted 400 years, where it seemed that God was silent. But he didn't forget about them, and he started up a conversation with them again from a burning bush with Moses. Can you imagine how extraordinary that must have been? I've often said, here was Moses, 80 years old, thinking, well, it's probably time to sit around the tent and, you know, retire and play with the grandkids and all that kind of stuff. But then one day a bush was burning, and God said, get to work. And Moses, at 80 years old, and for all of you, you are never too old to respond to the call of God to do something extraordinary in your life. But God used Moses to bring out what had become the Hebrew nation out of Egypt. He spoke to them, then at Mount Sinai, they literally heard the voice of God. They were given the Ten Commandments, the and not only that, but the laws that showed them how God wanted them to live in every part of their life. Remember, they'd been living in this pagan nation. They had no idea what God wanted. And God said, now I'm going to tell you every single thing that you need to do because I care about you. I love you. I want you to live a holy and set-apart life. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to worship me. Now, not only that, God gave them what is known as his covenant, where he said, if you follow what I have told you to do, 
If you obey me, if you don't have any other gods, I will bless you. I will take care of you. You will be given this land. But he also told them very clearly that if they didn't do that, they would be punished. And so you would think after hearing the voice of God, they would charge into the promised land, trusting him. I mean, good grief. They'd seen him taking them out of Egypt and do all this wonderful stuff, destroy Pharaoh's armies and all these kinds of things. Speak to him out of the cloud at Mount Sinai. But they get up to the promised land and what do they do? They fall apart. Oh, there are giants there. We can't do this. We're afraid. We don't really believe God. And so they had to go on a 40-year detour because of their sin. But finally, the land was conquered as God promised, and the kingdom was set up, and the dynasty from which David would come was started. Now, from the time of David on, salvation history could have been glorious. Solomon started out as the wisest Solomon, who was David's son, the wisest and richest of men. He was admired by the world. He could have continued a reign honoring God and being his witness to the world. God had a one-on-one conversation with Solomon and said, What would you like? I'll give you anything. Solomon asked for wisdom. God made him the wisest man in all the world. And not only that, he gave him every earthly blessing. But like Adam, so many years before, he quit listening to God and he turned to other voices. And the Bible tells us that his wives led him astray. Again, like Adam, he probably had no idea of the consequences when he thought, well, you know, maybe one little sacrifice to this pagan god, to this idol, well, I know it really isn't anything, but this will make the wife happy, and, you know, I'll do this. Well, one seemed to lead to another, and then to another, and then to another, and eventually to really horrific sins. And the rule under the rule of his son, the kingdom was divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. It was split apart. And the northern kingdom never did follow God after that. Now, over these many months, we've looked at their stories of how there have been these consistently evil kings in the north, some good, some bad kings in the south. But through it all, of course, God did not abandon his people. He kept up the conversation with them using his prophets, where he sent them to people, reminding them of the covenant. They were to worship God only and to live as he wanted them to live. But a lot of people just didn't listen. And just as God had promised to bless, if they kept the covenant, he also promised to punish if they didn't. And because Israel did not listen, did not repent, did not follow God, it fell to Assyria, was the people were taken into captivity and never returned to the land. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, experienced extraordinary miracles. They had some good kings, they had some bad kings, and again they had a long line of prophets who continued to tell them what God wanted them to do. And yet, the majority of them continued to sin. Now, after years of warning, some brief revivals, but overall ignoring God's words, Judah fell to Babylon. The temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and they were taken into captivity. But once again, God didn't give them up. He didn't 
with his side of the conversation, he kept talking to them. He sent them the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, even while they were in captivity. But after 70 years, a remnant returned to from Babylon to Israel. And after a struggling start and a 16-year pause, they finally completed a modest temple. Though to do that, they needed the rousing calls to get to work from both Haggai and Zechariah. Well, again, God doesn't quit talking to his people. Meanwhile, back in Babylon, a lot of the Jews were settled there and were comfortable, and they didn't want to go back to this ruined land. And a woman named Esther, who was an orphan of some of the captive Jews, becomes queen of the Medes and Persians. And there's this big drama in the book on how there was a threatened slaughter of all the Jewish people. But again, God intervened. They were saved. And after a little while, God calls a man named Ezra to take another group back to Israel. He goes, he preaches, but there's problems. People really aren't listening to God. The temple had been built, but once again, they just, they weren't staying focused on their task. The walls of Jerusalem were a pile of rubble. It was really sort of a disaster there. But meanwhile, back at the, now the Medes and the Persians are the rulers. They've taken over Babylon. And back at their capital, there is a man, a Jewish man, who's the cupbearer to the king, and his name is Nehemiah. And one of the exiles comes from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah says, well, how's it, how's it going in Jerusalem? And his friend says, oh, not so well. The walls are broken down. The city had no protection. And you see, the reason this is so important is what really defined a city back at that time was that it had to have walls. This is what defined the territory. This was its defense. Without walls, a city was just this hobble, this this." Uh, this series of little houses and and whatever. Yes, the temple was there, but there was no protection, no identity. And so God really touches Nehemiah's heart. And he also touches the heart of the king that Nehemiah served. And not only did he give Nehemiah permission to go and rebuild the wall, but he completely funds it. So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. And not only does he rebuild the wall, but he helps to rebuild the people spiritually. Now Ezra is preaching while Nehemiah is building. And they work, there's two main areas of real problems problems with the people. Number one, they'd started marrying pagan women again. They were divorcing their Jewish wives, marrying pagan women, and both Ezra and Nehemiah said, this has to cease. This is what caused the downfall of Solomon. You know, haven't you people learned anything? So they had a bit of a revival there. That stopped. And then the temple services and caring for the priesthood had not been maintained. These things also had to be cleaned up and done properly. Well, things seemed to get a little bit better so Nehemiah thinks, well, he can return back to the palace because the king really wanted him back there. Apparently, he was very good at the jobs that he did. So he goes back to the palace. But then he comes back again. Apparently, we don't know whether he heard that things weren't going so well. But he finds that there has really been bad things going on since he's left. One of the biggest things is the Levites were not receiving the tithes they needed to live on. So they go back to their farms. They had to live, so they go back to working at other jobs. And a a pagan named Tobiah had literally moved into the temple and just kind of taken over, and this is where he was living instead of the services being done for God. Well, 
Not only that, they were buying and selling on the Sabbath, and they were again marrying pagan women. Now, Nehemiah was not subtle in his response. His response is really dramatic, and this is what it says that he does. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 13.25, it says, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of them in and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for for yourselves. He's talking about the pagan people surrounding him. Was it not, he goes on to say, because of the marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for the contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. And then he ends the book with this prayer, Remember me with favor, O my God. Now, there's a little bit of controversy on this, but I totally agree with the commentators that say that they believe that the book of Malachi was written at this time, that Malachi was preaching at this time because he goes over exactly the same things that Nehemiah was concerned with. So he begins, Malachi begins this, the book that, that we have from him, and Keep in mind, this is this book's a really big deal because it's the last conversation God is going to have with his people because he will go silent for 400 years. So Malachi begins the book by saying, A son honors his father, a slave his master. If I am a father, who, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty, It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you offer, when you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. And you say, what a burden, and sniff contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring me injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer as sacrifices, should I accept from them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. He goes on to tell them, this is what the priest should have done. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord. My covenant with him. And he's talking about the tribe of Levi. And keep in mind, this was the priestly tribe that was in charge of worship and teaching. He goes on to say, a covenant. This is the covenant God made with Levi. A covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. 
but you've turned them from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you've not followed my ways and have shown partiality in the matters of the law. Now, our applications here are not real profound. It, you know, really doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. God is not pleased with faulty worship. We need to bring him our best. And I think not only our best in terms of offerings and things like that, but also I think we need to be very careful to bring him the best of our attitudes when we come to worship God. Spiritual leaders should be ones of righteousness and peace, those who turn people away from sin. And they should teach. And this is so important, not just making people feel good. My husband and I were at a wonderful um, workshop today. It, it's, uh, it's on the, um, evangelism explained, and it's, uh, it's just really good. It's, it's about reaching your neighbors and things like that. And one of the things that they talked about is that we keep the integrity of the gospel, that we don't water it down just to make people feel good. A day of judgment is coming. Heaven and hell are realities, and if people don't trust Jesus as Savior, they will spend eternity away from him. This is part of the gospel message. And when it talks about the Levites being ones who shared life, that's what we're supposed to do, the whole gospel message. And we need to say, if people aren't challenged from our spiritual leaders, who will? So the book of of Malachi really challenges them, and it should challenge us also to pray for our leaders. The book then goes on in the passage on how God hates divorce, and he's talking specifically about the Jewish men divorcing their Jewish wives to marry younger pagan women, and that the children were, of course, suffering terribly because of this. Now, we all know that divorce is not God's plan. God hates it, and so, I can tell you, does every person who's ever been divorced. No one would say divorce is a good thing. It is a tragic and sad thing, but it's also not the unforgivable sin. And Malachi goes on to talk about a number of others that he spends even more time on. We want to pray that our marriages be whole and a blessing from the Lord. But if people sin and are divorced, they can be forgiven. They can go on and live good and godly and wonderful lives. Now the book goes on and Malachi then says something that I think is so sad and depressing. He goes, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And I think how tragic to think that God's tired of listening to you. And they then respond, well, how have we wearied him? And Malachi responds by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he's pleased with him. Or where is the God of justice? Boy, the application here. It isn't pleasing to God that say evil is good. And this is something we have to be so careful about in our world today because we all know a lot of the world's values are really messed up. To know what is good, we need to look at God's word. How does he define good? How does he define evil? And he goes on in Malachi 3, 5 where he says, So I will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, 
adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labors of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the aliens among you of justice, but do not fear me. Now this is so similar to the warnings that God has given again and again and again from Deuteronomy on that people of the covenant are supposed to be, number one, people who have lives of personal holiness and truth. That is imperative, and we will sometimes really talk about that, but God also says you are to do your work justly. Don't defraud your laborers, and I'm going to be a little bit testy here, but sometimes in churches, I just think it's terrible if people aren't paid a living wage. Now, we need to we need to all be conscious of what's going on in our community and different things like that, but it's really sad when maybe one or two people who work at the church get benefits and health insurance, and then other people are, and I've, I've known many places that are like this, and it's I, I just think we need to really kind of look at it if there are some people that are getting health insurance and other people are kept at maybe a certain amount of hours and they don't. Is that really the way to treat workers that's pleasing to God? Now each one of you has to answer but if you have people working for you are you treating them fairly? That is incredibly important. Are we taking care of those who are the the least among us with the widows and orphans, people who don't have as much. And the Bible is very, very clear that aliens and foreigners are not to be deprived of justice. I know in many ways for some people that's not a popular thing to talk about today, but the scriptures are extraordinarily clear about it. God wants justice. He wants compassion. He wants mercy. The earth is his. We are just his stewards, and we are to treat everyone in a way that is pleasing to him. So you can really tell, I think, a lot of times what someone is like, what their real belief system is like with how they treat people that they consider less important. I know sometimes I've been shocked when I've been with certain people on how they treat waiters or waitresses or or sales clerks. And I think it's really important to go out of our way to be kind to people in a lot of these situations. I know when I was traveling and teaching my seminars, I would work so hard to be kind to ticket agents because I had, you know, and and they would, uh, oftentimes they would say to me, you know, it's really nice to have someone that's nice to me. I had people tell me people would throw coffee on them and scream at them and do just terrible things. And we should never, ever, ever act like that. Another thing that um, just, you know, that <laughs> this is a personal challenge to me because it isn't easy for me. And it may not be for some of you also. But, you know, when you have to call one of these long distance numbers for some sort of tech support or, you know, to get something taken care of or whatever, it's so easy to be be angry because they always say due to unusual volume well that's just a flat-out lie you know it's always like that you know the wait time is going to be blah 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 and so by the time this per person talks to you it's easy to be angry but we can't do that we need to be kind to people and I know sometimes if you can tell maybe by people's accent that they're in India be especially nice to them. I know from talking to some of them in the past, do you realize that if they're talking to you during our daytime, it's the middle of the night for them and how awful that is. And sometimes I've said, it's the middle of the night for you, isn't it? And they'll go, yeah. 
and I'll say, that's kind of tough. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. And they're always just shocked. Another thing if you're, that I haven't had a chance to do this now, because you don't have to call tech support quite as much, but sometimes if, if you're doing something like that and somebody says, hi, my name is Joe, I'll a lot of times go, now I know your name isn't Joe. Tell me what your real name is. And it's really funny because so often people, nobody's asked him. I say, you know, if we're going to talk for a little while, I want to know who you really are. And it's amazing how just even that little tiny bit of kindness, I think that's pleasing to the Lord because, oh, that would be a terrible job. And so uh, think about those things and how can we reflect the Lord that we serve in those situations. Now, remember the situation that Levi faced with the, I mean, that Nehemiah faced with the Levites returning to their fields? Now, the reason that they did that is they weren't being supported in the temple. Now, here is the context of this passage that um, I'm, I'm being a little feisty in this lesson, but uh, in this one, some of you may not appreciate, but um, I'm going to tell you what the word says. And this is where he then really lands into people. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. The vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord. Then all the nations will call you you blessed for you will be a delightful land now the context of this very important it was the support of the levitical priesthood and the promises are specifically to the nation of israel that they were to support them this is not underline not 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 it is a distortion to claim this as an unconditional promise if you are tithing that is not what it is about so how are we supposed to give today if that's not what it's about we're told to be generous the new testament encourages generosity and god wants us to share with people to people that are helping us in ministry paul talked about the need to help needy christians where to manage our resources well but we know from the lives of new testament saints that we're not guaranteed physical and financial prosperity in this life Many of the great servants of God were homeless, and so was Jesus himself. He was an itinerant preacher. So you see, we can't equate these Old Testament promises in specific situations with how we're supposed to live today. Now, some more thoughts on this. Of course, we have everything that we have and everything that we are belongs to God. But to be honest, we have to realize that tithing per se is not a New Testament command. And the storehouse is not the local church. In that day, it was the place that was responsible for all the teaching and worship and sacrifices. And, and this is really important, it was also the place that was responsible for all the social welfare.
And so unless churches today want to take over doing all of that, they're not the storehouse. Now, what were they actually supposed to do with the tithe? Now, it's really interesting. I never hear this passage preached on a whole lot, but this is really interesting. In Deuteronomy 14.22, it says... In talking about the tithe, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe, now listen to this, of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant, you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because a place where the Lord will choose to put his name is too far away, then exchange your tithe for silver, and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. And at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows, who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Now, what does this tell us that should be done with the tithe? Number one, it says celebrate. The whole first part of this passage says have a party. Rejoice, feast, whatever you like before God as a celebration with what he's given you. And then support those in ministry. Don't neglect the Levites. And then support the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows. You see, we must always look at the context of passages in the Bible about giving. So much of what we do, if we are honest, in our churches today is based on contemporary culture, not on biblical commands. Now, I'm not saying that it's sin to support your local building program or whatever or all kinds of things that we want people to give to, and a lot of that's very good. It's not sin, but we can't use some of the Bible verses to beat people over the head on it. Um, it's not only in the Old Testament, but in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where so many of the verses on giving are pulled out on for New Testament things, on sowing sparingly, reaping sparingly, God loves a cheerful giver, all these things. This entire passage is the Apostle Paul talking about a special offering he was taking up for the poor people in Jerusalem. And an important guideline there he has in the section on giving, he says, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not what you don't have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. You see, Tithing. Sometimes churches can beat people on the head about this. And let's be honest, for people who are really well off, tithing doesn't even make a dent. It's just pocket change. It's really very little compared to all that they have left over. And for some people, that can be an extreme hardship. And so we need to be gentle. We need to be kind. We need to not put burdens on people that the scriptures don't put on people. But 
uh, Paul does go on to say, each of you should give what you've decided, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you'll abound in every good work. See, he says you'll abound with spiritual blessings, able to do good work, not just lots of material goodies. So, in this, not only that, he goes on to say, people will see that you give, they will be blessed. When we give, whether it's a little amount or a big amount, no matter what situation it's in, when it's to the church or someone in need, maybe someone in prison, maybe whatever it is, when others see that, they will give thanks to God because giving, particularly giving sacrificially, is such an um, unusual thing in our world today. A couple other thoughts on giving. Remember in Romans 12.1, it says we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And I think the most important thing always that we can do is we can give our whole selves to God. Our life, our work, our hobbies, the things that we do, our time. God wants that so much from us. So, one last thing, too. I, I always like to share this quote by C.S. Lewis, where he says on giving, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure, and I would add that our time, on comforts, luxuries, amusements, is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we would like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure, and I would add our work and time for the kingdom, excludes them. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. So I'd encourage you, have a conversation with God about your giving and trust him that if you put him first that he'll show you exactly what he wants you to do. Now the book ends with a reminder that what we see now, what we do now, isn't all that, that there is. Judgment is coming. Malachi says, Surely the day is coming, and it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day is coming that will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left. But he also says, But for those of you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. The bottom line on that is someday all wrongs will be righted, all sin will be punished, but for those of you who love God, you will be healed, you will be joyful. And then the book ends, and I want to end this study, the Old Testament, with this absolutely wonderful and encouraging passage where it says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Remember, you have listened. 
You've learned, you've discussed, you've prayed about all these passages in these months where we've looked at the Old Testament. Now, not only are our conversations with God important, but when we discuss them with others, He is listening. He is recording them. And think about it. Remember the scriptures, He says your sins are forgiven and forgotten. But what you've talked about concerning the Lord, when you talk with each other about the things concerning the faith, concerning the Bible, concerning what we have studied, God remembers those. And one day, when all that is evil and sad is melting away in judgment, we will be spared his treasured possession to once again walk with our God in loving conversation forever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson and the other podcasts. They're in downloadable PDF format on www.bible805.com. And do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. We're going to be starting next into the New Testament, and I'm sure there will be a lot that you will learn from that. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.